0: is does God get mad? I mean, quite often in our our Christian walk or the Christian projection is that we have this beautiful, loving God and um, sometimes uh, society and even ourselves ask the question, well, can God really get angry? Does God really cause destruction and calamity? So there's a couple of um, key questions um, that I wanted to ask. So we have the the subject matter or the title, Does God Get Mad? But there's three other sub-questions that we're going to look at today. We're going to briefly touch on why is God angry? How does God show his anger? And is anger all there is? So we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2. And um, look, it's a complex book. Uh, first, if you would pick the book up and read Micah, like I did this earlier this week, I remember thinking, um, oh gee, and I read it again, and I thought, oh, okay, gee, this is still hard, and I read it again, all the sections that I was going to share with today. It's not a very easy book to get your head around, you've got to understand, and I thought maybe putting together some key and helpful insights might be very helpful. So I don't know about you, when you start to read something, unless you actually understand a bit of the background or the context, it just gives you a little bit more understanding to the passage and to the um, scripture itself. So a couple of key points. In fact, I put seven or six, I suppose, helpful insights together. If you've got some notes and you like to write notes, maybe these, scribing these down might help. So firstly, the people group that Micah is speaking to is from Samaria, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. Ultimately, they were God's people. They were considered as Israel, the Jewish nation. Secondly, the majority of God's people had been disrespectful to the covenant, to God's covenant with them. That was the law that was given at the time of Moses, remember the Ten Commandments, at Mount Sinai, and that was really about relationship. So before we go any further and dive into Micah too much, understanding and having some insight into what we're going to be reading through Micah is important. So grab your Bible and your Bible, and now that you've got Micah, rip back to Exodus 19. Keep your hand in Micah there. Go to Exodus 19, chapter 5, sorry, verse 5. I want to give some background and understanding what I'm talking about when I say, It's really about a relationship. Exodus 19 and verse 5 says, If you obey me fully, this is God speaking, and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, a nation that is set apart. So here God has the expectation that there's a relationship. And you've probably heard the saying, relationships are a two-way street. Um, I don't want to belittle God in any way. But here God is saying, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. So he desires to have a relationship with um, his people, the Jewish nation. And he asks out of that relationship to have respect and honour that is duly his. Let's rip across back to Micah again. So our first point was, that's right, Micah was speaking to the people group of Samaria and Judah, all the Israeli people. The majority of God's people have been disrespectful to God's covenant, which we just read about what the covenant was about. A lot of it was about relationship. God saying, you need to honour me. You honour me, and you will be a holy nation, set apart. You will be special to me. The third point of some helpful insights to Micah. Look, it's poetic. There's a lot of imagery in the book of Micah. There's an initially there's fire and smoke, which we're going to read about, and the earthquake at the beginning of Micah. In some ways, it starts out a little bit similar to what happened in Exodus, when God came down to give His covenant to the people of Israel. But unfortunately it was an exciting part of that vision, the first stage of that vision. Here, O people, O peoples, all of you, listen, O earth, and all who are in it. The sovereign Lord may witness against you the Lord from his holy temple. Just want you to imagine here that Israel is like on trial. God, if you can imagine a courtroom and, and God is brought brought into the stand. And um, the people of Israel are on trial and God is there as witness, as the accuser of these accusations. So God is bearing witness to their sin. Look at verse 3. This is where the judgment against Samaria and Jerusalem starts to come out. This is what the judgment is going to look like. So God has put them on trial and this is the reality of the judgment. Look, the Lord is coming from the dwelling place. He comes down and treads. Some translations are probably better than this. They say tramples. Tramples means destruction. So he tramples on the high places of the earth. High places of the earth is also known as where there would have been altars and worship. So he's crushing these places. The mountains melt beneath him. The valleys split apart like wax before the fire. Like water rushing down a slope. This is this imagery of destruction of the area, of the city of Samaria. So why is there destruction? It's obviously because of their sins. So here it is actually said in verse 5. Look, this is all because of Jacob, or Israel's, transgression, the betrayal to God. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? There's a bit of sarcasm. What is, what is it? Judah's high place. Is it not Jerusalem. These are the two cities that are on trial, if you like, for um, the disrespect, the, the disconnect that they chose to have from God and from the covenant in their relationship. Verse 6 unpacks a bit more about punishment for Samaria. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble. So there's going to be destruction a place for planting vineyards, I will pour out her stones in the valley, I will lay bare her foundations, her idols will be broken into pieces, her temple gifts will be burned with fire, I will destroy all her images, since she gathered the gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as these wages of prostitutes, they will be used again. So this punishment that was occurring, this destruction that was going to occur that Micah is prophesying that God had given him. See so what was going on in society in those places, not only had they completely separated themselves from, from God and, and everything that God represents, there were really false prophets. There were dishonest leaders. There were selfish, selfish priests in Israel and Judah. When they publicly carried out religious ceremonies, they were privately seeking to gain money in this and influence. To mix selfish motives and an empty display of religion was occurring. And it really was corrupting their faith. And it was corrupting the nation's faith. And this had gone on for 500 years. Can you imagine living in a religious society like that when that was occurring? Let's look into verse 8. Now Micah's starting to grieve the situation we read here. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her wound is incurable. It's come to Judah. Micah grew up close to Judah. He's in the southern nation. So we can see the destruction that is going to occur. is creeping from the north and coming down to the south. This punishment is going through the whole land, the whole people of Israel. Verse 10, this is now he's going to say, I tell it in Gath, and I'll just jump along here. Gath, Beth-Ophrah, Shapir, Zainan, Beth-Ezel. See, these are cities that this punishment and destruction from the Assyrian armies is going to be working through in years to come. Verse 12, Maroth, 13, Lakash 14, Morseth and Gath, Asib, verse 15, Maresheth, Abdulam, this is a continuation of destruction through all these cities from the north to the south of their sin. This is the expanse, I suppose, of God's judgment to the nation that nothing will be spared. Nothing will be spared. And at the ante really starts to come up a bit here when you look at verse 16. The children will be taken. Shave your heads in mourning for the children whom you delight. You make yourselves as bald as a vulture because they're going to be taken into exile. The children are being taken from them as well. And this is the state of depravity of the the judgment that's going to be placed on the people of Israel. Does God get angry or does God get mad? Well, yes, he does. You can see that that was really the outcome of his judgment, the outcome of his judgment on his people. And So often we can sort of feel that, you know, God's just a loving God and he is a loving God, but, you know, he's a God who has justice. And he is a God so holy and pure that he can't stand to look upon sin. And sin was just out of control in the people of Israel and it has been for 500 years here, we read. And it's got to the point where judgment has to occur. I'm going to come back to a bit more about that. But now let's look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, if you like. So I suppose chapter 1 is more about the outcome of the judgment. Chapter 2 is, you know, what's actually happening on the ground? What's actually happening? Let's have a read. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning light they carry it out because it's in their own power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance, So what was happening here was leaders, if you like, wealthy people, were oppressing the poor. Um, Micah was an average farmer in feeling oppressed as well. And the oppression, the financial oppression was so much that they were having to sell their homes back to the oppressors, sell their land, their farms, everything they had. And then these people in these high places, these leaders, were then um, renting. Renting that back to the farmer himself, to the point where the farmer couldn't even begin to continue to afford to even stay on what was rightly his initially. So he, this, this level of societal destruction was taking place, even within the Jewish people, even within their own nation, which they should have loved one another and cared for another. This was the accusation towards the people. Society was just ruining itself. Therefore... In other words, in verse 3, now because of that, this is is what's going to happen. God says, I am planning disaster against you, for you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. This is when the destruction will occur, be a time of calamity. In that day, men will ridicule you and they will taunt you. And with this mournful song, you will sing, we are utterly ruined. My people's possessions are divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traders. This is what will be happening to the the Jewish nation now, the punishment from God. When the Assyrian army, some some 150 years later, are going to come into the Northern land and they're going to just destroy city by city by city by city. And everything that has happened to these leaders and these false prophets, all the indictments that they've put on the the poorer people within their Jewish community, is going to happen to them. They're going to be privy to how they treated people. The punishment will be similar. They will be utterly ruined. Let's look on the verse 6 now, the false prophets. Do not prophesy their prophets say, do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace won't overcome us. What was happening here was this conversation from the false prophets and leaders within the Jewish community that when Micah is sharing this judgment, this prophecy, they're saying, hang on, we object to that, you can't preach like that. That sort of preaching is too heavy, it's too hard. We don't believe that God can bring about this sort of level of destruction. So here are the leaders are opposing Micah's preaching or what he's sharing. They're saying, it's, you know, don't prophesy that. That's not what really God would be like. Verse 7, it should be said, O house of Jacob, that's the people of Israel. Is, it the, is the spirit of the Lord angry? Does he do such things? So back to our initial question, does God get angry? Well, Yes, he does. He has this righteous anger, and he is at the point where he couldn't bear to look upon sin anymore, and something had to be done. A lesson had to be taught. Let's keep reading down there. So, God rewards the upright. This is just at the end of verse seven. Do not my do not my words do good to those? Sorry, to him whose ways are upright. For those whose ways are upright, God is going to reward. God is going to care for. Verse 8, Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off each robe from those people who pass without a care. I mean, this is the way society has become. People aren't doing good to other people at all. They're, they're driving honest people out from their homes. Let's read really this. So people are walking along the street. They're just ripping a robe off someone carelessly. Verse 9 says, You're driving the women of my people from their pleasant homes. Home wasn't a place of refuge or safety anymore. You take away my blessing from their children forever. So that land that they were in was a blessing from God. And now it's been ruined. That land was a place of rest. And now it's been taken away from their own people even. Verse 10. Here we are, Micah implying, God's implying, that these people need to be removed get up, go away, for this is not your resting place because it's, it has been defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy. That's how far society had gone. It's beyond repair. Do you feel like society can be like that today? Do you feel like some interactions that you can have, what you see on the news, what you read about on your feed, or just that general feeling, the world's shifting and changing very quickly pursuit itself. And in some ways you can see the actions that are occurring here within the people of Israel, within their own countrymen, um, is happening in the world today, across the world, isn't there? There's destruction, there's hatred, there's no love for your fellow brother. It's just all about self-interest, you know, self-worth, building up oneself, crushing someone who's of lesser value or maybe a poorer status. It's verse 11. If a liar and deceiver comes to you and says, I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer and he will be just the prophet for his people. What this is implying is the people just wanted to hear about the pleasures. They already said, you know, they already objected to what Micah was sharing was God's judgment. No, no, God would not be like that. Don't prophesy that. That's not what the prophets say. And here Micah is saying through the, as a word of the Lord that you, know, you just want to hear about the pleasures. You just want to have that prosperity type conversation that God's going to always look after you, always love you and, and never bring about destruction. Well, he's not. Let's um, finish off part of the section in verse 12. So we have this judgment that's occurred and we can see that um, this judgment, we're going to now move to a little bit of understanding about God being a restorer, a rescuer. So deliverance is promised, verse 12. So despite what has happened before, despite the judgment, despite how people are treating one another, And the destruction that has caused to society. Here God is um, saying in verse 12, I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob, that's O Israel, I will surely bring together the remnant, or that's the remaining, what's left over of Israel. I will bring them back together like sheep in a pen, a flock in a pasture and a place will throng, will have a noise with people. God's starting to promise them restoration in a safe place. Verse 13, one who breaks open the way will go before them. That is God's gonna break down this gate. He will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through them and the Lord will be at their head. Chapters one and two, chapter one obviously Talks about this major destruction, destruction, this major judgment. Chapter two talks about you know, what was really occurring in society. You know, but right at the end of chapter two, we sort of have this, this breather, if you like, with this resolution where hang on, God's going to bring about some sort of rescue, some sort of deliverance. And you know, how's that going to look? Well, as we've worked through some of that, those chapters, and I apologise if I haven't been completely clear, I'd love to talk to you later a bit more about it, but I posed we're back to these other questions. So our topic was, does God get mad? But question one was, why does God get angry? And my short response is, God's judgment is necessary. God's judgment is absolutely necessary. His judgment te- teaches us about perfection, he is so holy that no sinner can stand in his presence. It identifies God's inability, if you like, if he does have an inability, um, to look upon sin. You can imagine God can't look upon sin. He turns his face from sin. It's not because you can't, he doesn't want you to see him. He just turns his face from the sin because he can't look upon mankind in that state. That relationship that he had with the covenant that was agreed to in Exodus... He had an agreement that you follow me and you'll be a holy nation. You'll be set apart. You'll be loved dearly. Israel's breaking this promise, breaking their part of the promise, their part of the relationship. So we're dealing with a holy God that can't stand the sight of sin. His judgment is somewhat inevitable and necessary because of the holiness that he has when we compare it to mankind. But it also teaches us about, you know, in some degrees, his generosity, his mercy. God's anger, we must remember, is not in isolation here. For only a merciful God would provide a way to forgive and redeem his chosen people. Remember, right at the end, we we read a couple of verses, 12 and 13, which bookend a deliverance, a promise of deliverance, the promise of gathering up what was left And moving on with him as Lord and King. Punishment and discipline bring about an awareness of wrongdoing. It's probably fair to say. And even in our own humanity, we know that. It causes us to compare the current standard that we're choosing to work at or operate at or live at to a higher standard. And here we're talking God's standard, God's perfect standard. The covenant law in the Bible reveals sin. Okay, so we have the law and and no one can actually meet all aspects of the law and that's because it gives us an understanding that we can't actually meet God's standard. The law reveals sin and it calls us to God's higher and perfect standard. Look, it's really hard for us to appreciate in our Western world and even just our humanity, I suppose, the relationship between discipline and and love, but I have an, an odd example that um, many of you may relate to and it's all to do with growing up. And um, a family, I wouldn't say tradition, that's not the right word, um, anyhow, it doesn't really matter. you'll get what I mean. So generationally in our family when it comes to discipline, and I, I'll sh- I won't share in how I discipline my children, I'll talk about how I was disciplined so it makes it a bit easier. <laughs> so. If I was to do something wrong, and I mean properly wrong, um, mum would say, and I'll try not to look at them because they love it, (laughs) mum would say, you wait till your father gets home. (laughs) So that in itself meant total worldly destruction as we knew it. (laughs) Trust me. So I'm trying to to draw this parallel here to a, a complex passage about understanding relationship between discipline and love. So I would wait till my father gets home in fear and trepidation, um, and the discipline would occur, um, and there was pain and suffering, <laughs> and there was tears, and um, but one thing uh, I admire, and Dad shared it with me that it happened with his father. I don't know how back any further back than that, um, and I've done the same with my kids. I hope most of the time um, that after the discipline occurred. Obviously, it feels like a loss of relationship for the one that's disciplined, isn't there? So if you're disciplined, you feel like, you know, go away. Go away from me. But at the end of the day or end of the night or end of a period of time, Dad would always come back and say, I'm sorry I had to do that, mate, but it's because I love you and I need you to learn X. And I thought, well, when I'm preparing this message, I thought... It's a a little bit of understanding of what was going on here with the people of Israel and God. God isn't a God of anger. Does God get mad? Yes, he does. We've seen it represented here in just what we've been reading. And there's plenty of other passages that see the anger of God lashed out onto the world because of sin. But you know what? There's discipline, but there's love. And just like my dad wanted to come back and make me understand why that discipline occurred, he importantly wanted to restore the relationship. So there's a relationship that was very important as well as the standard. And for the people of Israel and through the covenant that God had given them, that God God wants to operate at a higher standard. He wants them to be walking in light of who he would walk like. I was about to say Christ-like, but Christ wasn't around here, but that's what he's calling us today He's wanting us to be like Christ. He's wanting us to be like Christ. So that, that, if you like, is the standard, but there's also the relationship part of it as well, that we've got a loving God, that although there's discipline occur, there's also love and restoration of that relationship occur as well. So it's hard for us to understand these things, but God has the right to be angry with what we have done because at times we've totally rejected him, and the people of Israel totally rejected God for five hundred years at least, and the sin was just rampant. God deserved to be angry. It was necessary. Our second question, how does God show his anger? Well, certainly in this circumstance or well, these circumstances, we see that God hasn't held back in any way to those who have disregarded his ways. The cities are ruined, the children are taken. Their relationship with God during Micah's time was just, was just at destruction level. Both the Assyrian and the Babylonian armies later on conquered and destroyed and enslaved the entire people of Israel, exactly as Micah had foretold through his God. When we look at the Bible, we do see though a pattern of how God gets angry and how he shows his anger. When God dealt with the nations of Israel through the time of the judges, there's this pattern that starts to occur. We see sin, God's anger, judgment, then forgiveness. That was repeatedly played out. Say it again. Sin, God's anger, judgment and forgiveness. This is the form that it took for hundreds of years. The people would sin. God would speak through a prophet. They refused to repent of their lifestyles and their actions. God would get angry because of their continued sin and lack of repentance. He would then judge the sin through calamity or destruction and bring about some devastation for the people to recognise his perfect ways and to bring them back into a right relationship with him. That was his desire. His desire is not to bring destruction. His desire is to bring a right relationship back with them honouring a God who duly deserves to be honoured and worshipped. Judgment would eventually come, sorry, it would eventually cause the people to repent and turn back to God and God would forgive them. What do we see in the world today? What do you see in your world? Whether you're the type of person to look at things at a world, world level? at what's happening in our country, maybe at a, in our state or maybe even in our own town, you know. Are we a little bit like the people of Israel? Do you feel that the world is a bit like that? How are you in your own life? Do you feel that, you know, I don't want that sort of prophecy? You know, God's not like that. Don't tell me about that. God won't bring any devastation or calamity into my life to actually bring me to a point where I need to recognize that I have sin and I need to make a severe adjustment in my life. Question three So is anger all there is? This is a good part. The short answer is no. Anger, that is not all there is. The book of Micah is a book of judgment and restoration. We spoke a lot about the judgment this morning. We're going to speak a little bit just in closing about the restoration. Turn back to um, verses 12 and 13. Don't need to read them, but I want you to sort of just visualise where they are, where it sits. And recognise that it implies that God is like a shepherd who's going to rescue and he's going to regather He's going to rescue and regather. And that can be a prayer for our nation, and prayer for our world, that we, we're in a world where the gospel will impact people to recognise they need to have a right relationship with God because he desires to gather in the remaining, the remnant, what's left over, gather us together and lead us out. This is a God who wants to bring restoration. This is really his heart. He wants to bring restoration to the beautiful relationship that he wants with his creation and the beautiful relationship that he wants with each one of us. Micah chapter seven and verse eight. Quickly go across there, please. Probably out of my wheelhouse here, I was meant to stay in chapters one and two, but this really gives us a good understanding of his um, anger all there is? And of course the answer is no. Verse 18 of chapter 7 says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression or the betrayal of the remnant, those left over from his inheritance? Do not stay angry. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. That's a God who we're dealing with. We deal with a God who's willing and able and is rightly able to judge and bring destruction. We're also dealing with a God who ultimately desires to bring us back in a right relationship with him. God loves us. He will not stay angry forever, but he delights in being merciful. Some 2,500 years later, um, we can see how the hope of restoration with God's people <clears throat> and all the world was fulfilled through the work of the cross through Jesus Christ. And we've shared in that this morning with those that have even been baptised that they've come to the point in recognition that, you know, I have sinned. If I continue to sin, it'll bring about judgement and destruction in my life. And one day when I stand before God, if I don't get my life right with Christ now, I'll have a whole life of eternity and separation in hell. It's heavy stuff. It's heavy stuff. Where are you at today? Are you playing around the edges, thinking, look, God's just a God of mercy? He is a God of mercy. But don't forget, he's a God who judges, and he's a God who wants purity in his relationship with you. He desires you to have a right heart and a right understanding of a holy God and worship him in a way that he deserves, not in a way that you think you want to worship him. Worship in a way that he deserves. There is a redemption process where Jesus has paid for the price of sin. For those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and their Saviour, you know, there's no fear of judgment. So when I read this, it's, it's scary stuff. I don't really want to be judged in this manner. But look, we're about to... I thought we were. Communion. We're about to move into a time of communion to sort of bookend our time of worship, if you like. A communion reminds me about God has a rescue plan. So although there was judgment, he made a way. And this rescue plan is through Jesus Christ and what he has completed for me and you on the cross and for all this world. So our sin won't be held against us. It won't be held against us. You know when Jesus Christ was on that cross and bore the sin of the world his father couldn't look upon him because of that sin. As I said before God had to turn his face from that sin. He is too pure, too holy. We have the opportunity to live a life centred around Jesus Christ who has rescued us. Our sin is no longer held against us. Thank you to what Christ has done on the cross. As we close off this section of the book of Micah and launch into the next sections. Just wanted you to remember that God is a God of judgment. He's a God of restoration. Where do you sit in that? Are you at the Are you at the end, where you um, feel like, gee whiz, I'm a long way I'm a long way from where God wants me to be? Or do you feel quite close and pretty centred in where you need to be? and where God wants you to be in his will and his plan for your life. If you're at this end, that's great. If you're at the other end where you're feeling like you just worship God in the way that you want to worship, you know, you need to be careful. Stop and consider how you're really living your life. I want to close in prayer and um, invite those of us who know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Team are coming up to play. Um, feel free to jump up, participate in communion, because that's reminding us about this rescue plan that God gave humanity. The judgment of sin, a price was paid, a rescue was complete. Have you made a decision to follow Jesus? Or are you still wanting to worship the way that you want to worship? Let's pray. God and Heavenly Father, we just thank you um, for this time that we can be in worship with you, be in song, and the, the sharing of the lives that have been committing themselves to Christ through the waters of baptism. As we have looked at this book in Micah, these chapters in Micah, Lord, we recognise that you are a God that is so holy um, you can't look upon sin, that at times the judgement that is given to mankind and the destruction that is given to mankind from you, is deserved, Lord, but we thank you that you're all about relationship and restoration and that you love us and you always give us a way to come back to you. We just thank you, Lord God, that your anger, your wrath is not all there is, but you give hope to all those who love him. We just thank you, Lord, that this communion now that we can participate in, Lord Jesus, we thank you for a price that you pay that is like no other. Um, As we take this uh, cracker and this uh, grapefruit, this drink, Lord, maybe we just slow down, stop and consider the rescue plan that you put in place for our lives and the hope for eternity that you give, amen.